Hi there, Dane here from Arc Health. Welcome to Remote Consultation Masterclass Series. Now before we get started, if you've not already listened to the first part of our podcast with Dr. Roger Neighbour, do head over there first, that's episode one. Now this episode, episode two, is the second and final part of our podcast with Dr. Roger Neighbour. So I do hope you enjoy it. Moving that forwards, I guess, based around your consultation model, what modifications do you think you need to make in terms of how we safety net patients when particularly we can't read their body language as easily or it's, you, know, you can't give them that paper information leaflet in the same way? Yes. Any advice around yeah. those points? Yes, I've, uh, if I could be slightly immodest just for a moment, it's the whole thing about safety netting, it's one thing which, which I, I, I'm aware that I personally introduced or at least gave a name to that has stuck. I'm actually quietly proud of that. I think that, that has made a difference. It makes me feel life hasn't been totally in vain with that. And housekeeping is the other one, which I think is, is important yeah. too, which we'll probably talk about. There are some misunderstandings, I think, of the thing about housekeeping. It's a mindset thing. In a way, there aren't any rules. You know, you must do this and you mustn't do that. And you should always say X, Y, and Z. It isn't a question of technique. It's a mindset thing. If in your mind constantly is the idea that there's some risk here, and part of what I need to do is to make sure that I don't expose the patient to unnecessary risk, and if that thought is in the back of your mind, and particularly as you approach the end of the consultation, it comes to the front of your mind, then I think whatever is appropriate for safety netting ought to flow naturally from that. So, so safety netting isn't just something you tack on at the end of a consultation. It ought to be part of, it ought to be just kind of a background, a kind of counterpoint to, to, to a lot of what we say in the consultation. And that even starts even before the consultation. If there's one key thing to having a successful video consultation, it's to make sure that the consultation you're having is suitable to be had on video. And that sounds obvious, but, but I think you know, because of the shift in popularity for all sorts of reasons, I think it's possible for us to overestimate the usefulness and the appropriate of video. There are some consultations that are fantastic for video. They can be time-saving and labour-saving and all sorts of, of excellent things, but there are some that it's actually dangerous to do. And if you're having a consultation where physical finding physical signs is important, then that is not safe to do on video. So if you're aware that the consultation... Either in advance is going to need a proper physical examination, then it's not suitable for video. And I think I think you shouldn't you shouldn't really start a video consultation unless you've already got the potential backup, converting it if necessary to a face to face quick quite quickly to be able yeah. to say to a patient, I'm sorry, I can't take this any further because I really actually do need to have a look at this rash. You'll need to come in. I know at the moment you know the, the heat is on from COVID at the moment, but that will all die down eventually. I think it's, it's, it's really important that we don't get seduced by the novelty of it or the fact that it's quite, quite fun to be consulting from home, to lose track of the last circumstances where it actually is unsafe. Yeah. And, the, and the time to safety net is before the consultation, not just to tap yeah. on at the end of it. Does that make so, sense? Yeah, definitely. So this goes back to, you know, conversations you had before around the triaging to make sure it's the right yeah. person we're seeing yeah. in, the, in the right format or mode. Yes. I think just staying with, with triaging, if I can, it's very tempting to delegate your triaging either to a receptionist or, in my mind, a great deal worse, to some kind of algorithm. You know, I will ask a series of yes-no questions and that gives me the answers to who you've got to see. I think that is awful. It doesn't work for the phone-up service anyway, for the one-on-one service. It doesn't work for that anyway. Most of those seem to end up with a load of pointless questions followed by, you need to see the doctor. On the other hand, I think the experience that we ought to take from various uh, work that's been done in hospital A&E departments is that to do effective triage, you put your very best person at the front line, the person who really can make decisions and who can sniff out the ones where this doesn't quite fit and the ones where there's a bit of danger. 
or the ones where it really is appropriate you know to say well no you really yeah. need to talk to somebody else about this yeah so i think there's a balance to be struck there obviously yeah. you can't have every doctor triaging every consultation um but neither should you have your junior receptionist or your um committee designed algorithm yeah but and i think that's a good point though because i think a lot of people now over the next few months are now re-looking at how do they move forwards mm. you know because this has been almost a baptism by fire people have worked yes, quickly to do what yes, they've indeed. done and done a fantastic job i might say yeah. so, so i guess it's now the, the key points for practice to consider really around what does triage look like to decide on is it telephone yeah. is it video is it face to face who does that and how and yes. also, I think the other point you made, which is really important, which is if you start a video and you think it does need more, but also mm. more importantly, that more is needed now, you know, how do you drop that into a face-to-face? Do we have the capacity? Sure. Um, yes. So that's all key planning questions, I guess, really, isn't it? Yes, indeed. Yeah. 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 Okay. I think... No, go on, Roger. Yeah. No, I was going to say, cause video at one point uh, and, and telephone consultations as well, which are still actually slightly more common than video, although much applies to phone consultation as it does to video the expectations seem to be that this will be time saving yeah uh, it actually isn't if anything i think the experience that's coming in is that for a condition that that is isn't obviously a quick in and out video doesn't save time it saves convenience for, for many people you know, in yeah. terms of not having to trek to the surgery or take time off work <clears throat> but it doesn't it doesn't save time yeah um, no. and, and we shouldn't expect it to and we, we shouldn't yeah. think that we're consulting badly if you can't consult faster on video. Which, which leads on to probably my next point and question, really, which is, it's the age of 10 minutes, isn't it? And I think there's a, a few different doctors have been submitting questions, which has formed part of this podcast. And mm. I think some have been saying that for them, there seems to be a pressure for them to do these video consultations in under kind of 10 minutes, really. And they're finding that with the switch in consultation style, that these consultations are more comprehensive than a, mm. a remote one sure. have been in the past. Yes. And they're kind of struggling to kind of manage. And uh, a lot of them were asking, what are your kind of key messages around housekeeping um, in, yeah. in this context? Well, when you say people feel under pressure you know, to stick to 10 minutes at max and if anything work faster, the adolescent in me wants to know, well, who on earth is making this stupid rule? There's no law, even before COVID, there's no law that says a consultation must be 10 minutes. It's a purely arithmetical exercise. If you divide the demand by the number of time, by the number of doctor hours available, it comes to 10 minutes. It's a purely administrative thing. There's no law that says that it must be 10 minutes, be 10 minutes on average. There's no law that says when it gets to 11 minutes, you're, you're, you're working badly. There's no yeah. law that says patients will sue you if they're two minutes late because they don't. And I think one of the key messages, I think, that's really important, this isn't about COVID. I think this is, this is me now being a grumpy old fart. I want to say to, a, to some of the younger generations, if somebody says you're, you know, that you ought to work to 10 minutes, tell them where to stick it. It's an issue of manpower and capacity in the system. I don't know many doctors in, in this country or any, in any others who, who think that 10 minutes is ample time. It isn't. Mm. It used to be less than that, just by the arithmetic. When I started in practice, six, six minutes was the norm. But 100 years ago, when I started in practice, you could cover the, the medical agenda in six minutes because it wasn't that complex. It's now much more complex. The nature of the problems that people bring to us are much more complex. The number of options that we've got for management and for therapy and so forth are much more wide ranging. There's much more treatment and options available. You can't do that necessarily in 10 minutes. Yeah. And I, I and, think, um, and we've got lots more allied health professionals also working in general yeah. practice now who potentially Indeed. are seeing some of the quicker, possibly presentations which means, yeah. as you point out quite rightly, uh, a lot of GPs say they are left with the more complex consultations sure, yeah. at 
10 minutes. And in a way, that's what that's what it should be. I mean, we've had the training and the experience that enables us to do it. It's for God's sake, it's, it's what we bang on about as being the strength in general practice, that we can handle complex and uncertainty and comorbidity, and we can delve into the wider context that we boast about that. Yeah. Uh, so I think if somebody say, well, please do all that in 10 minutes, the answer has to be we can't and don't you dare expect me to. Yeah. Because this then, I think this is really important too, because it ties with what you were saying about housekeeping. Housekeeping is about looking after yourself and protecting yourself. And there's a bit of an assumption these days in that, I mean, obviously far too many people in our profession are suffering from stress and burnout and wanting to take early retirement and are really succumbing to the pressure of the job. And there's a bit of a sense out there, it's seldom put into words, but there's a bit of a sense out there that if people can't stand the pressure, well, that, that's a reflection on them and they ought to be more resilient. Resilience is a buzzword at the moment. We've got, to have, we've got to have resilience. I don't think resilience is the answer to a system that actively oppresses you. There's, there's a danger of blaming the victim. There's a danger of saying to the doctors, you ought to be able to work in 10 minutes and if you can't, it's because you're not up to it. That is yeah. bollocks. Sorry, it's a medical phrase. I did a urology job once, I'm allowed to say that. But I do feel really strongly about that. that yeah. The answer to time pressure is not to make more resilient doctors necessarily. It's to solve the time pressure. And that's, yes, the that's system an issue has capacity to change and manpower. And that's politics. And it's about, it's about colleges and government departments and committees, all that sort of stuff. Uh, but it needs to be seen for what it is. It isn't down to the individual doctor to solve a capacity problem in the system. Yeah. Yeah. That said too, I mean, as you know, my interest is in the consultation and quite a lot of teaching that I was doing before COVID put, you know, closed down a lot of stuff was very much around, around the issue of time. Everybody feels time pressure. Of course you do. It goes with the territory. And people would, would, would quite often ask, well, how, how should we change the way we consult in order to get it done in 10 minutes? Well, there's a limit to what you can do with consulting techniques. Because quite a lot of the things that you can do to relieve your own work time pressure aren't to do with how you consult at all. They're outside the consult, the consulting room. They're to do with, have you got enough doctors? What's your policy on locums? Are you training the receptionists right? Are you using the, the nurses and the, and the nurse practitioners and the, the other disciplines? Are you using them right? Nothing to do with how you consult at all. This issue of, of time and, and 10 minutes, we have to think much more widely outside the box than just how do I run my consultation? Because there's a yeah. limit to what you could doing that time and there's a limit to what you should do in that time yeah. end of rant no uh, i no valid point and i think um, many practices are doing it differently so for example the practice i worked in in new york and mm. uh, working in new york uh, many have moved to 15 minute practice uh, consultations yeah. Yeah. um others uh, but i do know there are colleagues of mine in london who are still very much on 10 minutes that i'm aware mm. of but i guess the big question you raise here is what are the resources that you have who is doing things what are the systems in place yes, and it yes. can't just all be solved by resilience no indeed um, no. yeah completely yeah because there's nothing worse than being stressed every appointment because sure, you're trying yes. to fit in but, but you're right i mean one of the things which is nice about general practice is the degree of, of freedom we do still have about how to organize our working days yeah. and there's no law that says a surgery is uh, is, is 12 10 minute appointments without a break yeah. there's no law that says that yeah so um, every everything's possible and we need to yes. relook at it. I know. I know it's not easy. You know, I'm not trying to, yeah. to, to lighten it, of course. Yeah. But I think we, have, we actually have to have to have to locate the problem where it really is, and it's incapacity. The problem is capacity. Yeah. No, that's important. Um. So, kind of moving on from that point, really, to the more handing over part of your model in the past. Mm. I think a lot of doctors say in a moment that there's a lot of health anxiety from patients, and I guess obviously understandable with COVID, mm. and they're, they're worrying about where they can contact their doctor in a timely manner. And a lot of people are saying that their patients are struggling to take control of their health at this time because of those anxieties. 
And I guess a lot of GPs are now finding that these video consultations or, or even any remote consultation is becoming lengthier as they try to spend more time really encouraging people to take responsibility for their mm-hmm. own health. So I wonder what your take is on kind of the language we could use or the tips we could get across to try and do that handover of health, particularly over a yeah. video consultation. Yes, I think that's really hard, isn't it? Because I think we, we sometimes overestimate the impact that we have on people, on patients' lifestyles. I'm sure you have countless times said to, to somebody, gently, politely, helpfully, etc., you know, you could really benefit from losing some weight. And they say, oh, I know, doctor, yes, you're absolutely right. And they go home and do absolutely nothing about it. Mm-hmm. And same, same with smoking advice and exercise, oh, all the usual things. And I think that we have to acknowledge that GPs or any kind of medical professional are not necessarily the best people to be doing that. I think there's a limit to the impact that we can have. And I think in terms of what's the alternative then, I, I, mean, I, I can't for a moment think that anything you could say in a 10-minute video consultation is going to persuade somebody to lose three stone in weight. I just don't th- I think that's hoping for the moon. On the other hand, you do know what your local resources are. You might have some some nurse-led groups or you might have some patient-led support groups and so forth. I did a similar conversation with this for a thing through the college a couple of weeks ago where there was the most interesting presentation by a guy called Alex Maxwell, who's a GP in in London somewhere, who's organising video groups for patients with shared problems, overweight problems or or diabetics or people hypertensive or people recovering from strokes or whatever, with some enormous success about that. And uh, I'm not the expert to go to, but make a note of the name Alex Maxwell and Google it and you'll find your way to some excellent advice about how to how to take some of the responsibility from this off the GP's shoulders. I think it's, in a way, one thing which doctors are addicted, which GPs in particular are addicted to, are the idea that we are, are actually all things to all people. Most GPs suffer from or have a please love me syndrome. We like to be liked by our patients and thought well of and admired and so forth. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's, it is an undercurrent in, in many doctors' psychology, my own included. And part of that can express itself by saying, you bring me a problem, bring it on and I'll solve it for you. Yeah. Um, we don't have to be the experts on everything. No, and, and obviously that's a challenge given the broad spectrum of things we cover. And, and sometimes I find it's the patient's expectation of us as well sometimes. Yes. But behavior change is difficult, and you're quite right to point out. I think a brief intervention-wise, my own interest is more in physical activity and getting people more active. There's a couple of good studies talking about brief intervention being that if we give brief advice for every 12 patients or so that we give that brief advice to, one patient mm-hmm. might change from an inactive person to active. I think smoking is much larger. I think numbers are 50 plus. So there's some potential, but like you said, we have to be yes, part yes, of a right. joined up network. Think, has to mm. signpost the right person with the right skills. I think also being slightly more constructive about it. Um, we tend to count our motivational advice in terms of health effects. You know, stop smoking or you'll get lung cancer. Lose weight or you'll get a stroke. Uh, and well, for many people, health issues are not their primary motivators. And with some individuals, it might be a case of stop smoking because actually your breath smells and I'm not surprised your girlfriend has gone off you. Or um, lose weight because if if you get a stroke, they won't let you fly to Australia to see your grandchildren. Not health issues. And I think uh, I think most people outside the medical profession who work in this field of lifestyle advice and lifestyle change will say the key thing is to tap into the individual's key motivators. Yeah. Not to assume that just because they're talking to a doctor that, that health issues are their key motivators. Yeah. No, I think but, that goes, yeah. I think that's really important, not, not to assume that, that it's a health yeah. issue. But yeah. to try to find out, well, if you had a stroke, what would that stop you doing? Yeah. Yeah. 
And I think, so there's a couple of points you make there that hopefully listeners might want to go away and have a look at, but behavior changes is so complex. Some of the stuff you're talking about is around understanding the patient enough to then understand their motivations, but also there's other things like capability and opportunity for them. You know, what can they do? Um, Susan Michi, uh, UCL base has got a behavior change wheel. So uh, worth having a look at. Stephen Rolnick has his motivational interviewing model as well, which has uh, some value and people enjoy that. So all, all parts worth looking at. Thanks, okay. That's really useful. Really useful. Um, so moving on, one last thing on consultation. I want to finish off on some of the more kind of medical education bits. Okay. But considering the handover part of your model, we've just talked about that. So I think we, we've taken off some kind of key points there um, around what we need to, to talk about. But it is a challenge. Um, mm. So do have a look at that. And um, Alex Maxwell is someone that we should probably try and get on, actually, and talk about some of the things yes, he does. He yeah. he's, he's good. He, he presents it well, too. So. Mm. so in terms of uh, medical education, then really to finish, in terms of medical education, what are your thoughts and advice for TPDs, trainers, doctors, providing medical education, particularly around how to teach consultation? You know, yeah. Should any of this change in the way we d- teach this now to our registrars? Mm. Yes, yeah. I guess that's really interesting because it's... At risk of sort of going over this past history, the UK and the English-speaking world in general, in most parts of the world where English is the vehicle for medical education, emphasis on the consultation has been quite a theme for many years. And it dates, I think, probably back the days of Barlint, which was the 1950s, no, the 1960s, 1950s and 60s, that original work on doctor-patient interaction. And most of the theoretical stuff, most of the models and the teaching and the training in any systematic way worldwide is actually UK derived. Uh, And I don't know quite why that is, apart from the accident of history that took the violence from Hungary to London in the 1950s and 60s, because they were absolute pioneers in looking at communication and, and the interaction. And I think also it probably does stem from the fact that in the NHS, right from its early days, there has been, regardless of what we were talking about earlier, there has been that pressure to do a lot in a short time. And unless you manage that interaction, um, you can't do it. I mean, you, you can't in general practice, as you know, you can't hope to do hospital medicine only faster. That, that's not enough. You, you, you can't do it that way. We, we have to tackle it in an entirely different way, as you know. And most of the, the work that's been done and the books that have been written and the models that have been published and the advice and the training and so forth that's been done dates from the, from the 1980s, 70s and 80s. It goes back to Bernard Long in 1976. And again, uh, Pendleton's book came out in 1985, my own in 1986. And Calgary Cambridge was the most recent, and that's 1992, I think. But since then, there's been very little original or different stuff taught in terms of theory about the consultation. And the world has changed hugely since then. Not least when MRCGP became mandatory in, was it 2004, was it? Can't remember, but yeah, around then. around then. And there's been very little fresh thinking about the consultation since then. And I think, in a way, I think those of us, I mean, quite a lot of the people who have contributed, myself included, um, are still around on the block and it's it's very tempting to peddle the same old messages and to think that it's possible to know to consult in 2020 in the same way that it was possible to consult in 1990 and i think we've actually made things in terms of, of the formal teaching about the consultation i think we've probably overcomplicated it i think we've made it more complicated than it is Bernard Long were the original ones and they had six phases, didn't they? And then the Oxford book with the Pendleton and the lot, they had seven tasks. And I had five um, checkpoints. 
Calgary Cambridge at the last count have 71 micro skills. Yeah. Dig, dig. But you can't handle that sort of stuff in real time, in real life. It's too complicated. Yeah. And I think the time is probably right for a, for a rethink about, about how we how we how we try to teach the consultation because it, it isn't enough just to hope that people can intuitively develop an effective consultation style. You can't just sit there in your consulting chair, brimming with goodwill and medical knowledge, and just hope that it works. Uh, you have to make it work. Yeah. And I think we've probably overcomplicated things, which is why. Can I get a plug in here? Go on, yeah, go for it. Okay, um, I've got a new book coming out later in the, in the year called Consulting in a Nutshell, which simplifies things beautifully, aimed particularly at ST3s and people early in their careers, end of plug, and, and I defy you to edit that out of the, uh, the edit. But seriously, um, as I said right, I think that earlier in our consultation, essentially the task of the consultation is quite simple. Chat with someone who comes in with a problem needs to leave with a plan. It's a, yeah. It really is as simple as that. And the strategy for doing that is actually not that complicated. It's work out what the problem is. And the key message is work out what the problem is first yeah. before you move on to the solution. So from um, a training point of view, you're almost identifying that while there is lots of things in the past that still are current and sure, workable, yes. there is definitely an opportunity here with the way things are going for someone potentially to even put their own name on it at this point in time. Um, but I guess this is where I guess the next few years will really inform what Indeed, the yes. new models yeah. away look yes. like. And I, I think seriously linking it with you know with, with what's prompted this discussion in the first place, which is, which is COVID and its impact. It's almost impossible during COVID not to consult in a more doctor-centered way. We've had to impose some structure on the access process. We've had to impose certain forms of triage, and certainly consulting by video because it's not so easy to have the the spontaneous ebb and flow between two people. Most video consultations are a bit more doctor-centered. That's not doesn't not, not necessarily a bad thing. But it does mean that the pressure at the moment is for us to revert to a way of consulting that's that a thought was it was on the retreat to some extent, which is for yeah. us always to run the show. Yeah. Uh, so I think in all this and all the forms of teaching, I mean I, we've got a fantastic body of trainers and, and program directors in this country, se- second to none in the world. They are superb. And I think it's really important that, uh, particularly at this time, that those of us with any input educate into education keep our eye on the ball and try to keep a sense of, well, actually, what are the core values here? I mean, the core values are delivering good sound clinical medicine, of course, but also being alert to the wider context of the buried stuff and the, and the hidden stuff and the stuff that takes a bit of insight and empathy and, and understanding. We need to try to find ways of preserving that. And there's no single way of doing it. But I just think that we mustn't in our enthusiasm for video and telescoped forms of consulting and under the pressure of a, of a pandemic, let's not lose total sight when the pressure eases off a bit. Let's try to remember what actually are the core values here, that we're actually trying to deliver something that revolves around the person the opposite us, not necessarily around the medical textbook or what the nice guidelines say. So oh, that, that was good. That was, that was a second rant. <laughs> well, uh, you're entitled to your opinion. Um, one mm. one take I want to um, ask you about is the CSA and exams in general, because I know oh, you right, had yes, stuff yeah. to do with this, um, and you're still involved with this. I, I guess, firstly, if you're able to give, give us a quick overview on what's changed during COVID, how how things are happening mm, now, sure, yes. and also then your take on CSA moving forwards. Mm. Yeah, um, I ought to make clear that, because you know, actually, I think in, in your introduction, you said I was an examiner. I'm, I'm not now. I haven't been for, for many years. Mm. I, was, I stopped being, being an active examiner in 2003 because 
I was then college president and one of the rules of the game are that the college president is the ultimate court of appeal if somebody appeals against an exam fail. And obviously there was a conflict of interest there. Um, having said that though, no, ever since then and still to this day, I'm actively involved in teaching and preparing candidates for CSA preparation courses and so forth. So, and so I still have my network of friends and connections within the exam, so I do know what's going on. As you know, the CSA is impossible to run under COVID and social distancing rules. So from, I think it was the end of April or thereabouts, uh, the CSA is currently suspended and has been replaced by something called the, the recorded consultation assessment. The technology of that is that people doing the, the MRCGP uh, now will, will upload onto a website recordings of I think 13, it might be 12, I think it's 13, of their own real-life consultations, which might be face-to-face or they might be recorded consultations themselves, but they upload real-life consultations and those then get looked at by examiners and assessed against the same criteria that the CSA was. So the, the, the marking approach and the, the things that are being looked for haven't changed at all. It's just that what the examiners are now looking at are recordings of your real consultations rather than simulated ones with a role player. Okay. It's also slightly cheaper. Actually, it's a fair bit cheaper um, at the moment. Always um, good. Because, well, people don't always realise this. The exam is, as an act of college policy, is, is not profit-making. It never has been. It, it covers its costs. It doesn't actively make a profit, much to the, to, to the disappointment of the treasurer, but it doesn't. The CSA is labour-intensive. You have to pay law players and you have to pay backfill locum cover for the examiners. That's why it's expensive, for no other reason. Whereas with the RCA, all you're paying is a certain amount of time for the examiners yeah. uh, without having to pay role players and so forth. So it, it's actually cheaper to yeah. run. But in, in terms of what it's looking for, it's looking for nothing different. It's still yeah. looking for, can you deliver safe medicine in a compassionate way? Yeah. Um, and it's assessed in the same way. So in terms of preparation, for any of you who might be, be listening or watching or watching this, uh, there's no need to prepare for the RCA in any other, any radically different way from how you would have done for the CSA, except that with the RCA, the choice of cases is entirely in your, the candidate's hands. Yeah. And so how you choose a portfolio, there is some skill yeah. in that. Yeah. If you send in 14 cases of people with a cold, 13 cases of people with a cold, because you can't go wrong there. Um, on the other hand, you can't be seen to be any good either. Yeah. If, on the other hand, you send in 13 really difficult testing cases, you'll probably not do terribly well, because how could you? You're only a young doctor. Yeah. So there, there is some thought there, and uh, if I can get another plug-in, not to myself this time, but the, the RCGP website has got some really good advice with some good clinical examples about the type of cases that make that are appropriate to submit. And quite a lot of questions that people ask about the exam and about the RCA are answered. It's, it's actually, the RCGP website is not the best in the world, but the exam section of it is. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's full. It's it's full of really good stuff about there with with some practical examples and so forth. So do, do, do check it. Yeah. So uh, yeah. Have a have a look. The, at the college, site. by the way, just at the moment is intending to revert to the CSA as soon as the yeah. social distancing rules allow. So, question for you on that first final question really is: yeah. so CSA wise, once it comes back into play. Yeah. Can you see a change in exam style happening? And if so, what, what might be the uh, case? I would think so, wouldn't it? Because the CSA is intended to be a test of how you function in real life or real-ish life. And real life has changed. Real life is now going real, uh, after the CSA, uh, after COVID rather. Um, I'm, sure we're not, I'm, I'm sure we're not going to continue to do 90% of our work remotely, but we probably do 40, 50% of our work remotely. Hmm. 
And in that case, any kind of assessment of how you function in the real world needs to include some kind of assessment about that. How that gets translated into exam format, I've no idea. I mean, I would expect that discussions like that are, are in hand as we speak. And the college has already made it clear that it will always give six months notice of any change it makes yeah. to the regulations. Yeah, it's people have time. So that's really important. It's a high stakes exam. And contrary to popular belief, the college is not trying to play tricks on people and screw money out of them. It really isn't. Perfect. Nobody ever believes examiners when they say that, but it's true. No, perfect. Uh, to be so fair, I think I, the answer is, is watch this space, but I expect it will yeah. change. Yeah. I, I, my own CSA exam, I remember thinking it was a reasonable uh, set of cases that I could have yeah. seen. It wasn't anything that was overly complex. I thought yeah. they were reasonable, but yeah. yeah. Why, why would you? I mean, I mean, there's there's no pleasure from an examiner to be gained by watching somebody you know, dig a pit for themselves and fall in. That's not. I mean, nobody yeah. likes to see that. No. Perfect. Well, Roger, firstly, thanks so much for your time today. Um, we've covered a lot of things uh, pleasure, and it's been fascinating. Um, I wanted to finish with one last thing from you, really, which is any kind of key final messages from your top tips before I close? About video? Or, uh, video consultation, yeah, mainly, yeah. Yes, a couple. Think, think safety. Secondly, in terms of how you improve and manage it well and, and, and develop a style of doing it that you can be proud of and think oh, that's okay. Take advantage of, of, of every opportunity you get to get some feedback on how you're doing. I think the very best way is actually just to watch recordings of yourself. I think virtually all, all the platforms allow a recording of you to be reviewable afterwards. Yeah. Watch yourself. It's a good advice for doctors anyways, isn't it, to try and, and put this more succinctly. Try to become aware of the kind of doctor you come across as. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it always looks different how you think it went when you're uh, it? Yes. When in the room, yeah. isn't it? So. Doesn't it? Yeah. Perfect. Well, look, thanks again, Roger. So thanks for joining us and thank you guys for listening. You've been listening to the Remote Consultation Masterclass Series. In the next episode, we'll be interviewing Dr. Anthony Waring, who's a consultant in sports medicine and also musculoskeletal medicine. And he's going to be talking to us about the rise in remote working and the challenges that this brings for musculoskeletal presentations. As always, do keep in touch with us for future episodes by clicking the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, YouTube or Spotify. See you on the next one.